0: Welcome to Tribe Talk, where we focus on the topics that will help you improve your mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. I'm Dr. Elena Villanueva, and helping
1: people improve their mental health is my passion. I'm Ann Hutira, and nutrition is my passion. Together, we invite you to be a part of our tribe and learn how addressing the root causes of your symptoms can bring you improved health and wellness.
0: So sit back, Relax and enjoy the next hour of tribe talk hi everyone welcome to tribe Talk We're super excited to have you here with us today We have a very special guest, a friend and a mentor uh, dr. David Jocker's joining us today and so um, Let's just let everybody jump into the room here today, and uh, and
1: he'll be joining us shortly. Absolutely. You know, I am super excited about today's podcast, Dr. V. Um, hearing Dr. Jocker's talk is pretty incredible. Let me tell you a little bit about him. So he's a doctor of natural medicine. He's a functional nutritionist and corrective Care chiropractor. He runs one of the hottest natural health websites at drjockers.com, which has gotten over 1 million monthly visitors. And this work's been popular on many media outlets, such as the Dr. Oz Show, Hallmark Home and Family. Now, Dr. Jockers is the author of the best selling book, The Keto Metabolic Breakthrough, and he's an expert in ketosis, fasting, and the ketogenic diet. So, welcome today, Dr. Jockers. We're so happy to have you.
2: Well, thanks so much, Anne, great to be on with you guys. Dr. Elena, huge fan of your work and I uh, enjoyed interviewing you for my podcast yesterday.
0: Thank you, yes, I loved, I, I, I loved getting to spend time with you and, uh, and, and spread the message with you.
2: Awesome, well, I'm looking forward to our conversation here.
0: Yeah, we're super excited. Um, uh, and where do we wanna to start today? I mean, there's, there's so much that we can talk about.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, I would say right off the bat, you know, just like we talked about, we can kind of pick up where we left off with our podcast conversation, which the listeners should check out Dr. Jocker's functional nutrition podcast, Dr. Elena will be, I think we'll probably publish that within the net, you know, sometime in June. So check that out. Great interview. But, uh, you know, we talked a lot about brain and mental health, right? And how nutrition lifestyle plays such a big factor with that. So I'd love to talk more about that.
0: Absolutely. And, um, you know, just like, let's just start off and then we can start dissecting it. But let's just kind of start off with an outline of some of the major strategies that you like to use. And then we can start breaking it down from there.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would say number one, we have to understand what fuels the brain. So the brain can run off of glucose and it can also run off of ketones. So most of our cells can burn fatty acids for fuel. But the brain cells themselves, we actually can't get fatty acids into the brain, at least not in sufficient quantities to really uh, provide a good fuel source for the brain. So our body has to actually make something called ketones in order to fuel the brain if it doesn't have enough glucose. And so for most people, just based on the fact that in our society, uh, food is very easy to get, and most of us are eating higher carbohydrate diets, diets that uh, consist mostly of you know sugars and starches, and so because of that, we've adapted to being sugar burners and sugar cravers, and our brain is consistently fueled with sugar, and it's not good at utilizing that alternative fuel source, ketones, uh, as a fuel source. Now our ancestors they were metabolically flexible. What that means is when they had food available, when they had fruit and, and you know sweet potatoes and stuff like that, and they were eating that, the brain used the, the glucose that came from those as fuel and it was a great energy source. But they then would go oftentimes days without food because they just didn't have refrigeration, that you know, they may not have a good harvest and maybe the winter, maybe they couldn't find an animal, whatever it was, the, the, the uh, environment at the time they didn't have access to food all the time right so then their body would start using their own body fat and they would convert it in the liver to ketones and the ketones would go in and start to fuel the brain and what we know with modern science now is that ketones reduce inflammation so we've got this um inflammasome in the brain and it can get activated and it, you know inflammasome will cause chronic inflammation And so ketones downregulate. It's called the NLRP3 neuroinflammasome, right? And we see that that's activated in conditions like depression, anxiety, um, people with addiction, Alzheimer's, dementia, Parkinson's. One of the hallmarks is that this inflammasome, this amplification, it's almost like, uh, you know, in a sense, it's kind of like a siren that uh, you you could hear throughout a whole city that tells, you know, all the cops to, 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 to get, you know, get their guns out and, uh, and start firing. And so it's kind of what happens in the brain. And so it happens over a period of time when we're exposed to toxins, infections, blood sugar imbalances, all kinds of things that are insulting to our brain. All these little insults add up and they turn on this inflammasome. And the inflammasome, its job is to try to protect against an infection from killing us quickly. That's why the body does it. It's a survival adaptation. However, if we have that going on long term, you know, we we can survive, but we just don't thrive, right? And over time, we end up with all these types of issues, like I was talking about. Well, ketones, when ketones are elevated and the brain's able to use those for energy, it is those are epigenetic influencers, and I don't know. You talk a lot about genetics, and so that actually impacts that inflammasome and shuts it down, turns it off. So it shuts down that amplification of inflammation in there. It's powerful, and so. Um, that's one of the best things we could do is develop metabolic flexibility where our body is good at burning glucose, sugar for fuel, but also very good at utilizing ketones for fuel when we are, for example, intermittent fasting or fasting, or, you know, we might even at from time to time, not like, I'm not saying you have to do it all the time, but from time to time, following a very low carb, uh, higher fat ketogenic diet, right? Which will help boost up those ketones as well.
1: Dr. Jockers, let me ask you, because um, the keto diet's become very popular, a lot of people are following this for weight loss, but it has some great healing benefits as well. But what's a healthy balance? Because you have some people who do it extreme and then try to do it for month after month after month, and then they find their progress, they're looking for plateaus. What's your advice for how someone can find that balance so their body can go back and forth between the ketones and burning glucose?
2: Yeah, it's very. That's a very good point, Ann. So I would I would put everybody on kind of a bell curve, right? So there's some people that are maybe let's say on the far right of the bell curve, that do great in ketosis all the time, right? For whatever reason, they're very insulin resistant. They just thrive in that that period of time all the time. But most people are going to be in the middle, right? And some people, uh, for very short, only for very short periods of time, is their body going to thrive in ketosis? For but for most people, majority of people. They're going to want to spend, you know, roughly maybe half the time in ketosis and half the time out of ketosis, and so the way that you do that is first thing you got to do is adapt your body to burning fat. So you start to gradually scale down your carbs. Right? I talk a lot about it in my book. I don't really like unless somebody's already metabolically very fit. I don't like an extreme change in diet. Like if you're normally consuming 500 grams of net carbs a day. And then you all of a sudden drop it down to 20 grams of net carbs. That's extreme. That's like, that's like taking somebody who you know, uh, just got off bed rest and having them run a marathon, right? Not a good idea. So you got to gradually move into that. So you might in my book, I talk about dropping 50 grams of carbs per week, right? So if you add up the amount of carbohydrates, net carbs, total carbs minus fiber, we don't count the fiber. And let's say you're at like 200 grams, right? Which, which a lot of people are. Then you would drop it down to 150, right? The the next week, um, and then you just do a, around in that range. You, know, you don't have to be like dogmatic about it, but somewhere in that range, 150 grams every day for that next week, and then you drop it down to 100 grams the following week, and then 50 grams the following week. And usually, the ketosis zone, unless somebody's very active and has a lot of lean body tissue, they can have, They have higher carbohydrate tolerance. They can handle more carbs and get in, into ketosis. For for a lot of people, though they're going to need to get their carbohydrates or net carbs down around 20 to 30 grams for at least two weeks. And, and for many people up to six weeks, um, usually I say about 30 days. And the way that you know you're in ketosis, this is how you know. I mean, you could certainly test your blood ketones and your blood ketones would be around 1.0, right? 0. 0.5 or above blood ketones. But really, if you, if you don't want to buy the testing, if you can go a day without food, like a 20, 24-hour period, and not have really strong cravings, um, not feel irritable, not see any drop in your energy, your mood. That's a sign your body is adapted and it's good at burning your own fuel source, right? So you can kind of test yourself out with that. Now you still drink water; it's more of like a water fast. Um, but that's a sign you're very metabolically flexible and your body's good at getting the, creating the ketones and utilizing them for energy. But you got to gradually shift into that. So usually. Again, we're dropping the carbs down gradually. I also like certain meal timing, like actually backloading the carbs, not doing them early in the day. You know, we were always told, right? Eat carbs in the morning because it gives you energy, but actually it creates more cravings throughout the day. So I'll tell people in my book, I talk about how if we, you know, if we're, we're getting 100 grams of carbs, let's do the majority of that in the evening, like with your dinner, okay? And do low carb during the day and that will help your body start using fat for fuel. Uh, as a fuel source, reduce cravings. And then at, during the period of time when you might normally have cravings, you'd be sleeping, right? So, um, and that's easier to kind of reset your system that way. And most people feel better that way. And I've noticed that a lot of people actually sleep better too because they can use those carbs to help produce serotonin in the evening as well. So I think it's, it's much more advantageous to do that.
0: You know, th- Going into ketosis really can boost brain performance. That's that's very, very well known. But what do, what do you say to the person who is trying to make a bunch of different changes at once in order to optimize their physical and their mm-hmm. mental health? So for yeah. example, you have someone who is trying to go into ketosis, but they're also trying to work out too. And they notice that their workouts went from hard to harder how can they help mitigate that?
2: Yeah, really good question, Elena. And I'm going to actually come back to that. One thing I, I wanted to uh, fully address Anne's question, because she also asked about like, how long should somebody stay in ketosis? So it kind of depends on you. So I say, okay, build the machinery. And I kind of talked about that. And then from there, now you have the machinery. Now you can experiment with what we call carb cycling, right? And, and usually like, a good way to start with that would be something like this, where you have one day a week, what we call your feast day, because feast, famine, cycling is really how our ancestors ate. Our ancestors didn't walk around saying, oh, there's an apple, but I'm trying to watch my carbs, so I won't eat it, right? If the carbs were there, they're gonna eat it, they're gonna eat whatever was available to them. Um, It just so happened that when food was available, they ate a lot of calories, and when it wasn't available, they ate very little to no calories. And so you wanna kinda somewhat mimic that, and so you might have one day a week, right? Like for me on Sundays, I don't go overboard with carbs, but I tend to have more carbohydrates on that day, okay? And then I also do one day, or I actually do so oftentimes two days a week, but certainly one day a week where I do a full 24-hour fast, right? So on Saturday, I will eat dinner Friday night and fast till dinner on Saturday. And then on Sunday, I'll eat more carbs. It's like a feast day, right? So I'm kind of mimicking that cycle. The fasting helps reduce inflammation significantly. The feasting tells my body, okay, we're not in a time of famine. We can, you know, basically not have to produce as much stress hormone. We can reset our system here, activate a little more thyroid hormone. So there's benefits to both. And you want to find the right cycle for you. For one person, it might be, you know, a feast-famine cycle like that. For another person, they might need two feast days, right? One fast day. You know, you kind of experiment over time. You, you figure it out, right? And, and really the process of health is, is about, it's almost like getting a master's degree. I mean, really health is a never ending journey and you're always learning about the rhythms of your body or you know, what, what works best for you. I, can, I tell people all the time, you know, it's, it's like getting a master's degree in your own health. You, you really shouldn't feel like you've got it mastered like you know, until you've had several years, oftentimes, of experience working with these things, and then you can dial it in, right? But you got to experiment with time-tested strategies like I just talked about. Now, coming back to your question as far as like exercise and when should we move into ketosis, I say, you know, that right off the bat, we want more of an anti-inflammatory diet, which is not necessarily, ketogenic diet is a very, is a, is more of an extreme anti-inflammatory diet, right? We don't need to jump right into that right away, but we do want to reduce our overall carbohydrate load. So three big changes I say right off the bat, get rid of sugars and grains, okay? So you still can eat a lot of root vegetables, sweet potatoes and carrots. Those are all nutrient-dense foods that tend to be higher in carbohydrates, fruit, things like that. But let's get rid of the sugars and grains. Let's get rid of bad fats, corn oil, soybean, safflower, cottonseed, canola oil, right? Those bad fats cause more inflammation in the system. And let's do our best to change the meat that we eat. Try to get grass-fed, organic, pasture-raised, you know more natural sources of meat because the commercial meat has bad fatty acid ratios and also it has a ton of toxins in our system. We're trying to reduce our toxic load. So I would do all of those types of things. And then as you implement exercise in- um, you know especially if you 're trying to like add in intermittent fasting and increase the the amount of exercise that you're doing, I would probably save intermittent fasting for as you first get started for days when you 're not exercising okay that would be a better way to get started over time you 'll actually uh, improve what we call your fasting muscle right where you 'll be more fit and more metabolically flexible and then like I actually just worked out right before this i haven 't eaten anything today you know I finished dinner at uh, 6.30, 6 o'clock last night, and I haven't eaten anything, right? And I don't even feel hungry, right? So um, normally I would eat right around now. I, I break my fast, but because I had this interview, I'm, I'm going to wait till after the interview. But I don't feel hungry. I actually feel really, really mentally clear. And that's an, an, an example of really good metabolic flexibility. Now, 20 years ago, I definitely couldn't have done that, okay? 20 years ago, I ate six, seven meals a day. I ate before I went to bed. First thing when I woke up, I thought I had to do that or I would lose weight. Okay, if I went three or four hours without food, I got hungry. I had cravings. I felt irritable. So this is something I built over time. Um, you know, it, it, but it doesn't take that long, right? It might might take somebody, you know, three months or so at most, right, to to kind of develop this sort of metabolic flexibility, if you're following these kind of strategies and doing it the right way
1: touched a little bit on, on fasting so far. And I have to say one of the best guides I've ever read on fasting was one that you put on your website a couple years ago. I love it. It goes very much into detail on the different types of fasting. And that's one question that we get a lot from our clients is, should I use intermittent fasting and how do I use it? And the key I think to that is doing it intermittent, keeping, keeping your body guessing. Too many people get into this cycle where they're doing the same exact thing every day or every other day. Talk a little bit about What are the best strategies for kind of easing into doing intermittent fasting?
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's a really great question. I'm glad we're we're talking about that. So the first thing is 12 hours overnight, right? So if you finish dinner at 7 p.m., you don't don't eat until 7 a.m. the next day. When you wake up in the morning, all of us are dehydrated because we've been sleeping. When we sleep, we're breathing out water vapor. So we need to rehydrate our system. So, I recommend drinking 16 ounces of water, at least 16 ounces of water before you even think about food, right? So, you've got to get the water down. And what most people realize, even people, I've had a lot of people tell me, I'm always so hungry when I first wake up in the morning. But if you drink 16 ounces of water, that is going to fill your stomach and suppress a hormone called ghrelin. Most people are hungry, not because they really need food, but because it's a conditioned response. You have this hormone called ghrelin that comes out of your stomach when Uh, you don't have anything in your stomach when the the walls aren't stretched. And the ghrelin tells the brain, I'm hungry, I want food. And so uh, when you drink the water, it stretches the stomach, you suppress the ghrelin secretion, and then most people don't feel hungry. Most people find it easy to fast for at least an hour in the morning, or if not longer, if they hydrate well. Now, I also am a fan of doing a little bit of salt too, because a lot of people are, uh, especially people that tend to have fatigue, uh, that that tendency and cravings, they tend to be deficient in minerals, right? So doing a little bit of salt, putting it on your tongue and drinking that water can make a big difference, right? And it can reduce nausea. Some people say, if I drink a lot of water in the morning, I feel nauseous, right? You do the salt. Oftentimes, it helps improve that because you're getting the minerals you need as well. So that's a great idea. Just do that right off the bat. And what I find is that most people find it quite easy when they start hydrating their body in the morning to, to fast about 14 hours. Okay. At that point, you might start noticing more hunger, like real hunger, right? Uh, at that point. And so what I'll start people with, and it depends on the individual, right? So for like a fit male, right? Typically males, it's, um, it's easier to push them into intermittent fasting than women, especially the hardest hardest cases are lean- very active type A women, right? And the reason why is that they're just, you know, lots of stress hormones are already lean. So the body is sensitive to, you know, burning fat because they already are very lean. So what I'll start most men with is going right to like a 16 or 18 hour fast at that point. Once they get kind of the simple fast down and hydrating in the morning. For women, what I'll start with, not and again, this isn't all women all the time, but a lot of times I'll do what's called crescendo fasting where we bump it up to 16 hours, but we only do it two days a week, non-consecutive days. Okay. And again, not days where they're exercising. So it might be like Wednesday and Saturday, right? Or something like that. Because it's a stressor on the body. We don't want to combine it with another big stressor. That's also teaching the body to burn fat. Uh, not, at least not right away. We want the body to adjust and adapt first. And uh, we want recovery time, right? So that's why we, we don't do it on, on consecutive days. So that's where we go next. And if they feel good with that, then we'll move to a cycle fasting where it's like every other day. So one day you do a 16 hour fast, the next day you're doing like a, a 14 hour, like 12, between that 12 to 14 hour range. The next day, 16 hour fast, right? So you're kind of alternating days. And if the person feels good with that, then we might even implement some exercise on those fasting days and see how their body responds to that. And if they're still feeling good with that, okay, and following all my principles, hydrating well, you know, when you do eat, you got to eat well, right? So it's not about eating less. It's about just eating less often, right? So when you do eat, you're not trying to count calories. You're trying to eat, you know, a sufficient amount of food, the food that you need. Um, Then we might push it to 16 hours on a daily basis and see how they do, right? Or do six days a week like that. And then one day where we have a feast day, you know, trying to find the right cycle, the right groove that works for that person, and I always tell people fasting is a lifestyle. It's not something you're going to do for the, you know, the spring so you can get your summer body. Um, you know, it's, it's maybe maybe a long-term fast. You might do like a, you know, some people want to do a three to five day water fast. And there's a lot of benefits to that. But intermittent fasting as a whole is something you should be doing in, at some degree on a weekly basis, right? And so trying to find the right cycle that works best for you and best for your body, your rhythms and your hormones, Um, you know, no no two people are exactly the same. Okay. And so you have to realize that and you just try to find what works best for you.
0: So that's such a great explanation. I kind of want to turn the corner a little bit and ask you what your clinical experience is uh, with people who have been struggling with various mental health related issues um, you know, when you do incorporate fasting as a part of you know one of your strategies that you do, and you know we'll get into some other strategies next, but um, how quickly do you notice that these individuals start seeing changes, and what are the biggest changes that they see regarding their mental health issues because typically, as you know, when somebody comes you know to you with a mental health issue, like let's say it's anxiety. Or, or depression, or brain fog, they're usually all kind of coupled together. It's very rare that you'll only have someone with just anxiety, or just brain fog, or just depression. Mm-hmm. They usually have a combination of things going on. And what do you notice are the first changes and the biggest changes in their mental health?
2: Yeah, for sure. So, like I was saying before, I don't typically start people out right away fasting. Usually, we're doing the diet changes. We're adding in some key supplements. You know, I see like magnesium helps a lot of people. Some different things like that, um, and hopefully seeing improvement with with those things. And so as they improve, because you know to get somebody to fast if they really have no history of fasting um, can seem daunting and intimidating. And if they don't have people around them to help them you know to help support them then the compliance is not going to be very good but as people start to see changes with their lifestyle they start to see uh, improvements then they become you know in a sense you start to see improvements you want it you want more like hey what else can i do right and then we start that conversation start moving people in that direction and you know i've had people come to me that are highly motivated to do a 5 day fast right and if somebody's really highly motivated great they got the motivation let's get started with it and if for whatever reason they end up breaking the fast on day two, I congratulate them. I'm like, you just fasted a full, full day. You didn't fail. You actually succeeded. Most people will never fast for one full day in their entire lives, right? You just did something that 99% of the world hasn't done. So, or 99% of, I should say, Western society, right? At least in some places of the world, that, that's common because they don't have access to food all the time. Um, and so... So that's you know where it starts. So if somebody has high motivation to do something like that, great, right? We'll ride off of that motivation and you know help them do the best that they can. However, that's not necessarily the starting place, and we start to lean in that direction, right? Just like I was talking about, 12 to 14 hour fasts in the morning, which is we actually call that the simple fast, right? And so it's it's really helping them helping them have the mindset. that's actually simple. It's a simple thing to do, right. And then from there, starting to lean them, lean them down. And I've seen amazing results with that. I mean, I mean, everybody starts talking about how they get their brain back, right? And that's because, again, we're shutting down that inflammasome. We're shutting down inflammation. And we're, te- we're teaching the body to use the ketones as a fuel source. And there's just incredible things that c- come with that. In fact, ketones are actually shown to help balance the glutamate to GABA ratio. And I know we talked about that in our podcast, Glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. It helps us think sharply and quickly. If I'm trying to remember things for a test or like a presentation like this, my glutamate's active, right? It's, it's shooting, it's, it's firing. But if I want to calm myself, I need GABA, right? We need a good balance there. And what ketones have been shown to do is actually help balance. A lot of people have too much glutamate, right? They have glutamate dominance and that causes irritability, anxiety, trouble, sleeping, headaches, right? A lot of different issues like that. Well, ketones as just a sole therapy, even if you were to just add MCT oil, right? A certain type of MCT oil, especially C8, uh, which, which only has eight carbons in it, right? So th- there's a, a common one, C8 MCT oil, will turn immediately into ketones. Or some people use exogenous ketones. It's been shown in studies to... Um, Get the ketones up in the brain and help balance that glutamate to GABA ratio, which again, reduces anxiety, reduces irritability, improves uh, memory, mood, right? All those types of factors. So a lot of great things with that. In fact, um, they actually did a study where in a nursing home, they put MCT oil, right? They had this group of Alzheimer's patients and they put MCT oil in their food, right? And then they, they did like a cognitive test before. And they did this for, I think it was 30 days. Might be wrong about the time timeframe. Um, but after 30 days or whatever the time frame was, they had them take this cognitive test again. And the people that had the MCT oil, and they were probably still eating you know terrible food from the nursing home. Um, but just adding the MCT oil, these people saw improvements, right? So just even something simple like that. So I like to add in some MCT oil. Um, simple thing to do, you know. People can just add a little bit of C eight MCT oil, like to their meals. Um, you know, some people like to put it in coffee, things like that. So, and then that can also make a make a change, right? Make a difference, and that can help them get more keto adapted, help them be able to use ketones as a fuel source more effectively, reduce cravings, and uh, improve their brain.
0: So, before we get into some of your other strategies, um, I wanted to to ask you about exogenous ketones. There are a lot of people who ask about exogenous ketones. What do you think about exogenous ketones and when is the best time to use them?
2: Yeah, I think exogenous ketones are a great breakthrough. Um, I don't think they're something everybody needs, certainly not all the time. Uh, However, they are fantastic for somebody that's wanting to get keto adapted a little bit faster. So, One thing that, you know, people try to go, they go on a ketogenic diet, and I want to talk quickly about keto uh, testing ketones. a lot of people will get urine test strips because they're inexpensive. They'll go on a ketogenic diet and they'll start urinating, you know, they'll urinate on the strips and they'll say, I'm producing, you know, the the strips will show high ketones and they'll say, oh, I'm in ketosis, but I feel bad. I don't feel good, right? I don't feel good. I'm, I'm irritable. I'm hungry. I still have cravings. I'm not getting the benefits here when you're urinating out ketones, that's a sign you're not using the ketones. You need the metabolic machinery uh, to, build, to use the ketones, meaning that you need certain enzymes, um, you need certain adaptations to take place in your cells and in your mitochondria in order to actually use the ketones for an energy source. So urine testing is actually not a good strategy. In fact, as you get more keto adapted, you'll notice less and less ketones on the urine strip because your body's actually using them for an energy source. Now, exogenous ketones can provide, so if you take somebody that's insulin resistant or a sugar burner, that's really hard for them to go more than four hours without a meal and they eat a meal. Okay. And then around that three hour mark, they take an exogenous ketone uh, supplement, right? That three to four hour mark where they normally might have hypoglycemia, and you know have cravings and need to eat they're going to feel better and because the ketones are immediately getting into the system right and uh and so they're going to feel better now again the body still needs to use we're putting a lot of ketones in the system quickly right so you can use a little bit of those for energy but still the body needs some adaptation time but the more that the body recognizes that there's ketones in the bloodstream because you know throughout the history of mankind, we only had ketones in our bloodstream when we didn't really have access to food or certainly, you know, carbohydrate rich food. So then the body would, would start, would get good at utilizing them. So the body doesn't know the difference between these exogenous ketones <clears throat> and our body's own production of ketones. All it knows is, hey, here's a fuel source. I should be using this for energy. I need to get good at utilizing this. So it's a way of teaching the body how to use ketones for fuel. You could also use the C8 MCT oil. Uh, I think the difference is that the exogenous ketones are a little easier to use between meals, right? Because usually they're like, you know, it's something you can just put in your water. Whereas like the oil, I mean, you could take a teaspoon of oil, right? But, uh, you know, it's not, not as pleasurable as like a good tasting. You know, most of these things are flavored with like stevia and stuff like that. So you could take something like that. And usually they have electrolytes as well. So the exogenous ketones have salts it's a, the beta hydroxybutyrate, which is the main ketone our, our body uses for energy, is attached to salts like magnesium, right? So there's usually magnesium in there and um, calcium and sodium and stuff like that that you need anyways, right? And when you're going on a low-carb diet, your insulin levels drop. Insulin, not only does it cause, you know, insulin is what brings sugar into the cells, right, to be used for energy. Insulin also tells the body, uh, to stop burning fat for fuel. So when insulin's high, it bur- you burn fat, or I'm sorry, you don't burn fat. Insulin's a fat storage hormone. Insulin also causes sodium retention, right? We hear a lot about being on a low salt diet, especially if you have high blood pressure. Well, we know high blood pressure, one of the main factors involved with high blood pressure for, for a lot of people, not for everybody, but for, for, I would say the majority of people with high blood pressure is insulin resistance, meaning they have too much insulin in their system. So that's causing more sodium retention. So those people do need to be on a low salt diet until they get rid of the insulin resistance or until they go on like a ketogenic diet or fast, because that's a way to get rid of insulin resistance very quickly. So when you go on a ketogenic diet or you're applying intermittent fasting, you actually need more salts because you don't have as much insulin being released. So you end up excreting, you don't retain the sodium, you excrete more of the sodium. And a lot of people feel bad because of that. they might feel lightheaded, things like that. So you actually need salt. So you might salt your foods well. You don't have to over-salt. You eat a lot of trace mineral-rich foods. I'm a big fan of like uh, wild-caught seafood, um, things like, um, like olives, for example, is a really good one, avocados, your dark green leafy vegetables. All your meats have kind of natural sodium in it. Celery is really good. Fermented foods like uh, sauerkraut, things like that. Uh, really, really good seaweed, right? You can get like sea vegetable. They have a a really good snack. It's called Sea Snacks. I don't know if you guys have seen those. It's basically like a sheet of seaweed with olive oil and sea salt on it. And it it says strangely addictive on it. You would never look at seaweed and be like, I'm going to get addicted to that. But actually, believe it or not, it tastes amazing. And it's a really good thing to to include in your diet, especially if you uh, are going on a low carb diet because you need that salt. Right? So, when you're taking the exogenous ketones, you're going to get some of the salts in there. So, the electrolytes can, can play a role. Um, but yeah, it can be really beneficial. For some people, they like to use it pre or post workout and they notice results uh, with it as well. Um, for some people, they like to take it after meals. You know? So, I don't think it's necessarily something anybody needs. Like, I don't think it's a essential supplement, but it can be a helpful tool.
1: I tried to get my daughter to eat those seaweed crisps and she wasn't having it. Oh really? (laughs) Those are pretty good. Let me ask you about food choices because one thing I've noticed about people on who are doing a keto diet after a while you know they tend to kind of start thinking okay zero carbs this is a great food for me to have you know let me put this ranch dressing all over my you know, plate because there's zero carbs, yet they won't touch a piece of fruit anymore because of the carbs. What is your advice for people on how they should maintain some balance and make sure they're still including some of those healthy choices in their diet?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, just because something doesn't have zero grams of carbs doesn't make it a healthy food, right? So you try to stick with healthy foods to begin with, right? So your your As much organic, wild caught, pasture raised—you know—when it comes to animal products, as you can. Things like uh, avocados, olive oil, things like that. A lot of the ranch dressings out there are really bad. Um, You know, they're they're just made with toxic ingredients. I believe that um, what's it called? Primal Kitchen has made one. I don't know. Have they made one? Yeah, I'm not a ranch fan, so. (laughs) Uh, I don't use it, but, um, but I'm pretty sure they have some good like salad dressings and stuff like that. that doesn't have canola oil. That's a good brand to look at Primal Kitchen. Um, You know, I know they've got salad dressings that my wife really loves to use. Um, I, for me, I just, you know, I put olive oil on stuff and things like that. So you're trying to number one, really get nutrient dense foods. I think that's number one. Um, I wouldn't worry about your non-starchy vegetables, Um, you know, consume those to, you know, as much as you want. For some people, they get more gas and bloating when they're doing them. You know, I find that, you know, steaming those can be helpful. But if you continually notice that, usually a sign that you're either not producing enough enzymes, you have like a bacterial overgrowth in your small intestine. Um, I always I always tell people, you know, do we call a broccoli test, right? So have either raw broccoli or lightly steamed broccoli, and that's it for the meal. And then see how you feel in two or three hours. And if you're noticing a lot of gas, bloating, things like that, you probably, you know, you might, might benefit from a period of time on a lower, what we call low FODMAP diet, right? Uh, and maybe some digestive enzymes. And then I also have people do what we call a steak test, right? You eat a steak. That's the only thing you eat, okay? And then you give yourself, you know, a few hours, three hours or so. If you feel great, That's a sign you digested it well. You produced enough stomach acid. If you don't feel good, if you feel like you've got indigestion, nausea, uh, it's just kind of sitting there in your stomach, you feel really fatigued, those are all signs you're not producing enough stomach acid. So we may need to support your stomach acid levels. There's lots of ways to do that. Um, And then I'll have people do what we call a fat bomb test, right? Where you take a fat bomb, which is basically like, usually like a coconut butter, coconut oil or almond butter based it's really mostly fat. It's like 90, 95% of the calories are coming from fat. That's why they call it the fat bomb. Sometimes it has chocolate in it and stevia, so it tastes good. But usually it's like 400 calories of just mostly fat. Okay, and you eat that. Okay, and again, you should feel good, right? You eat that, should feel fine. If you don't feel good eating that, you feel like you've got indigestion, bloating, gas, diarrhea, right? Different things like that. Maybe you break out with acne. It's all signs you're not getting good bile flow, right? So we need to support bile flow. These are all like self uh, tests you can do on yourself, little hacks you can do that can help you kind of customize where you want your diet to be. For example, people that aren't producing enough stomach acid, you know, we tend to stay away from the red meat, right? We're going to focus more on the white meat because you don't need as much stomach acid to break that down. And we're going to focus a lot on things like ginger, apple cider vinegar, taking some apple cider vinegar and meals. Uh, with meals and also like right before meals and water, lemons and limes. We might squeeze lemon and lime or apple cider vinegar right on the meat. So it actually starts the digestion process before it even goes in your mouth. Um, so we might do you know, some different things like that to help. Chewing on some ginger root can really help with production of stomach acid, taking some deep breaths before you eat. That actually helps with all these things. Uh, so we'll do things like that. For bile, we, um, you know, certain. there's also supplements that help with all these things as well, right? Like betaine HCL for stomach acid. Uh, you know, there's bile salts that help with bile flow, like choline and taurine and different herbs, like dandelion, bitters in general, like bitter herbs, uh, chewing on the ginger helps, uh, dandelion, cilantro, radishes, artichokes, right? So people that aren't producing enough bile, I tell them, eat radishes Arti- or artichokes every single day, right? So doing that every day or dandelion, something like that, one of those bitter herbs, you know, have a cup of it every single day. I eat radishes every day, almost, just about every day. I love the crunch. I like the flavor. I eat it almost every day. And that's got a lot of supportive nutrients for flow, right? Artichokes. I love artichokes. I like leeks. I like all those types of things. Really, really good for supporting good flow. Okay. And then for people that are noticing a lot of gas and bloating when they're eating a lot of these really healthy vegetables, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, you know, stuff like that, we might try some digestive enzymes and see if that helps. Um, otherwise, we might do some antimicrobials, right? So a supplement maybe with some antimicrobials to help kind of reduce some of the bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. And for some of those individuals, they just feel better on what we call more of like a carnivore diet, right? Um, Not that it's 100% carnivore diet, like that's all they're eating is meat, right? However, they may lean in that direction, right? Less vegetables, uh, at least of the fermentable vegetables. They might still do some things like romaine lettuce a little bit or um, zucchini and some of these lower FODMAP vegetables. Um, And we might do some supplements, you know, to help support that, like some antioxidant supplements along with it. And then more doing more of the animal uh, based foods along with like olive oil, um, things like that, that have less fermentability in the small intestine, right? So everybody's a little bit different and you can kind of customize that diet just based on how your body's responding to the foods that, that you're eating. And, you know, if you're still seeing issues, even though you've tried to do that, then it's a really good time to work with, you know, functional health coach and giving them that feedback, letting them know, Hey, I've tried the steak test. I tried this. That really helps them have a good place to start right? Because then they know where some of these issues are and how to address them.
0: Those are some really great uh, diagnostic, self-diagnostic tools that you just uh, shared with everybody. Those are some awesome, awesome pearls that you just gave out, Um, you know, because, you know, understanding how you feel after you eat a particular food can really tell us a lot about what it is that we need to do or what it is that we need to not do. Um, But, you know, going back to to, to nutrition, because that's, you know, we're, we're talking about a little bit of the nutritional strategies to, to determine digestion and things like that, but you had mentioned earlier that before you take people into ketosis, you know, people that are dealing with some mental health issues, that you're implementing and, you know, working on some other things first. What are some of these other strategies that you start with when you are working with someone yeah. with mental health issues?
2: Yeah, for sure. I mean, we want to get them sleeping well. Sleep is when your brain detoxifies, right? So we've got to get the sleep dialed in. That's when you heal. So, uh, you know, that's, we talked about, you know, some of the early digestive, you know, changes, of, I'm sorry, not digestive, but nutrition changes to make. So we, that we start right away. And the goal is to get them um, to, to help them sleep better, right? And there are a lot of different things that we can do, create a, create a good sleep sanctuary, good sleep hygiene strategies, and really working on dialing those in, getting them moving, just going out and taking a walk, getting out in sunshine, sun exposure, getting them going grounding, like barefoot on grass, dirt, sand, um, you know, different things like that. Lots of deep breathing. So we want to teach the body that we're in a safe place. And when we're in a safe place, we can put energy into healing, Right. So, I think that is number one, and and sleep is critical with that stress management, breathing practices, light movement, sun exposure those are all really you know they're all free, and uh, they're all all things you know tools that your body will use to help heal
0: so um and then and then also, let me just ask you uh, one more question, and then we've got some of the guests today actually have some questions for you. So we'll jump into that next, but um, we had talked a little bit about this yesterday. Uh, what are some of your tried and true uh, supplements that uh, you like to use for people uh, with mental health?
2: Struggling? Yeah, well, absolutely. Well, I would say number one, magnesium. I've seen huge changes, huge results of magnesium. Most people are magnesium deficient. You know, they say that, um, we use magnesium like a, like a car uses oil. The more stress that we're under, the more magnesium we're using it. We need it for over 300 reactions in the body. And it's one of those supplements, like for example, when people take vitamin D, they usually don't like immediately notice a difference, okay? Whereas you take magnesium, if you're magnesium deficient, you notice it. Like you just notice your brain's calmer, you're more relaxed, you see it, right? And so um, I love using magnesium. A lot of people are very deficient in vitamin D, so that's that's a key factor, and that plays a huge role with neurotransmitter production, with neurogenesis in the brain, all these all these different factors. Omega three fatty acids, right? Another uh, really important one. Um, also, I like you know different types of antioxidants, depending on like to just shut down neuroinflammation. But if we're gonna try to really shut down neuroinflammation, we use a lot of things like resveratrol, quercetin. Uh, curcumin, which is, you know, the active ingredient and in, in turmeric. Okay. Uh, all those things can be great. Sometimes um, EGCG, which is epigolactic which is in green tea can be really beneficial in some cases. Uh, for some people, they need B vitamins, you know, so trying to get some of those really great support supplements. But I would say like the, the easiest one off the bat, right away is magnesium. I mean, vitamin D also, you know, it's very little to no side effects, you know, I've never had somebody take vitamin D and have a side effect to that. Uh, Certainly you can get too much if you're taking really high doses for a really long period of time. But uh, if you take the appropriate dosage, usually about a thousand international units per 25 pounds of body weight, somewhere in that range, totally safe. Right. And then um, if you're, if you're tested and your levels are really low, you might bump it up like 2000 IUs per 25 pounds of body weight to get it up to a good therapeutic range. And then, um, and then, go back right to a thousand I use that's a great one it's like no side effects magnesium if you do too much magnesium you have loose stools that's typically the main symptom that that people will notice maybe nausea um, you know if you have loose stools you're doing magnesium you have loose stools either you're taking the wrong uh, brand the wrong type right magnesium oxide for example tends to be more of a laxative right uh, which can be good if you're constipated but if you're trying to really get more magnesium into your brain. We know magnesium helps protect the blood-brain barrier. Um, If you're trying to do that, then that's the wrong type, right? We want other types. There's magnesium glycinate, which is a really good one. Most people need more glycine amino acid anyways. Um, That's a really good form. I like magnesium L3 in as well, which is the one that's, uh, I think all magnesium, because, you know, I've had people take magnesium citrate and get reduction in anxiety right so to me all of them cross the blood brain barrier but from what i understand magnesium l3 and 8 crosses it the best right has the best effect on the brain so i'm a huge fan of utilizing that for a lot of these types of issues
1: wonderful let's get to a couple of the questions that we have here Um, this is from Catherine. she says thank you for doing this she's a big fan of your work dr jockers especially loved your recent piece and podcast on healing brain cells Hmm. So she says she is already doing most of the things that you suggest with the um, exception of a few supplements and doing ketosis beyond 16 hours a day um, or fasting for 16 hours a day. But she's struggling still with brain fog, working memory, vigilance, processing speed. She's done neuropsych testing and MRI. Are there any other tests that might be useful to figure out what's going on and to fine tune what she's doing?
2: Yeah, man, that's a really great question. And so if you've got the basics, these kind of foundations down that are lifestyle foundations that don't necessarily cost anything, I think that's a great starting place. And it seems like you've done that. Then the next step would be looking for some sort of chronic stressor. Okay. Um, For example, mold, right? If you're breathing it, if you're in a house that has mold and mycotoxins and you're breathing that in on a daily basis, that is a massive stressor on your body. And that can absolutely, and one of the big things that affects your, your, your brain, right? And so you can absolutely have issues with that. Possibly you, you may also be dealing with um, a house that has really high EMFs or like a neighborhood that has high EMFs. And so there are things you can do to help mitigate electromagnetic frequencies. That may be a factor as well. So these are things to look into. There also may be some sort of chronic infection, whether it's like a gut infection or a systemic infection, like a Lyme's disease. So these would be things to investigate. Typically, when you have gone to the level you have and you're doing dialing in a lot of these strategies, you're using some really good supplements, and you've been doing this for a period of time, and you're still not seeing the results, a really good time to look for a functional health coach at that point, because a lot of this stuff can be complicated. I mean, if you know, if you're seeing black mold in your house, clearly that's an issue. You need to get it remediated. You need to get air filtration. You need to get it out of the house for a period of time. Um, you know, that's obvious, but for a lot of times these things are just hard to, they're hard to pick up on, right? They're hard to know for sure if that's the case. Um, there are certainly tests that you can do. I mean, you can just, you could do comprehensive blood analysis and see if there's high inflammatory markers and liver enzymes and things like that, which sometimes are the case. Um, you could also do, you know, mold and mycotoxin testing, or you could have somebody come out and test like a, uh, what is a home biologist come out and test, your house to see if there's mold in there, if you're concerned about that. Um, You know, there's things you can do to help mitigate EMFs, right? Uh, And so you can start doing some of those things and, you know, and see if you notice a change or, you know, look for mold or whatever it is. Um, But also getting a functional health coach there to help guide you can be really helpful at this stage.
1: Fantastic. We have another question from Tracy. She asks, how many hours do you have to fast to start reducing bad gut bacteria and changing your gut microbiome?
2: You know, that's a really good question. When you create a fasting lifestyle, you already start to change your gut microbiome. In fact, there are multiple layers of your microbiome. In a sense, it's almost like, um, it's almost like the, you know, think about it like the animal kingdom where you have like main predators that kind of sit at the top. And if we're eating every few hours, okay, they're getting all the fuel. And then the little guys that help uh, strengthen our gut lining are not getting the fuel that they need. When you start to do intermittent fasting on a regular basis, um, you start to get more fuel, believe it or not, for the little guys, particularly Acromanzia mucinophilia, which is what we called a keystone bacteria, meaning that achermansia mucinophilia, that bacteria has been shown in, in studies to when it's, when it's high, like when it's elevated or in healthy, healthy levels, reduce irritable bowel, reduce inflammatory bowel conditions, things like that. And it helps strengthen, it actually eats our, our intestinal mucosa. And um, it helps strengthen the uh, mucosal membrane, right? So our body adapts as that mucosal, as the mucosa is being broken down and creates more mucosa, right? And we want to have the right ratios of these things and so we when we are intermittent fasting we start to starve down it's like um, it's like mowing your lawn right and weeding your lawn we start get getting rid of a lot not all of the bad uh, or the um, overgrown uh, bacteria we don't get rid of all of it but we do get rid of a lot of it and then we create an environment that's good for a lot of these really healthy bacteria to grow and to flourish so that is that is really key so I would say Doing something like a, you know, a 16, 18 hour fast on a regular basis, and then possibly pushing it to like a 24 hour fast once a week can be really beneficial for your system. Okay. And, you know, depending on your, how well you do with that, um, and possibly if you're looking to lose weight or, or reduce um, chronic inflammation, once you build up your fasting muscle, possibly doing like a three to five day water fast let's say, you know, once every three or four months can also be really helpful. Um, and that's been shown to stimulate even intermittent fasting for 24 hours, stimulates new stem cell production in your intestinal membrane, right? So your actual intestines themselves, cause they're, they're cells that turn over really quick every three to five days. So when you start to fast, they stem cells start to, uh, spring up in in your intestines like a 24 hour fast will spring up a lot of these stem cells to rebuild your intestinal membrane and to create tighter junctions so you have less leaky gut but when you push it to like a 3 to 5 day fast you're going to get even greater response and greater healing okay but again that's not something you jump into that's something that um you you lean into as you build your fasting window your fasting muscle um but yeah i would say on a regular basis doing like a 16 8 would be good to to um get changes there in the microbiome. And then of course, obviously making good dietary changes, your stress levels, all those things play, play a role with your microbiome.
1: You can next give it a question. Question. Yeah, go ahead, Dr. B. Go ahead. One more question. One more question from Magda. We'll squeeze this one in. So what if someone has hypoglycemia, she has to eat often or the symptoms get really bad. Mm-hmm. She also has ADD and she's struggling with brain fog. Where would you start with her?
2: I mean, I would start with the same thing. You start with that 12-hour fast, okay? I would start taking out those bad foods that we talked about, high sugars, grains, right? Um, She's still going to get carbohydrates. She can eat fruit. She can eat, um, you know, your starchy root vegetables, things like that. Increase the amount of healthy fats that are in there. So all those things would be key, Um, you know, right off the bat. Really try to focus on good sleep. Oftentimes people with hypoglycemia don't sleep well. So, making sure you have a really good quality dinner, really good uh, quality dinner overall. Um, pretty much, almost everybody with hypoglycemia is very magnesium deficient, and oftentimes they crave salts, right? So, getting enough salts, and then also um, taking magnesium supplementation can be really helpful. Create a great sleep sanctuary. Um, Elena, I know, I'm sure you've got a lot of good information on that. I know I, know I have that in my on my uh, website as well. Keep your room really dark, cool. Um, wearing an eye mask. These are all really helpful things. Um, So really trying to dial that in. And if you make those strategies and you're still not seeing changes, then very good idea to start reaching out for somebody. Because there could be, again, a chronic stressor. Maybe you're overreacting to EMFs. And that can be a daunting topic for a layperson to just dive into. Uh, So having a health coach to guide you can be really, really important there. Or maybe you've got mold, mold issues, right? Just like we talked about. Um, or certain nutrient deficiencies that you just wouldn't know about. Um, That that can also be a factor. So that's where getting health coaching can be really important. I always say, you know, get started. There's a lot of easy stuff you can do right off the bat. And then most people see changes. And if you're not, then you need help. You need guidance.
0: I love all of the at-home strategies that you've given today. It's just such a wealth of information. And this stuff really works. So for all of you who are listening, you know, if you're struggling and you haven't already gotten a health coach and you're kind of trying to figure out where to even start, these really are some very effective strategies. Dr. Jockers, I want to thank you for joining us today. I'm just so so excited that you made the time to come and join us on our podcast today and share this information. And we would love to have you back again soon. And, uh, and yeah, just thank you again for everything that you've shared today.
2: Well, thanks so much, guys. It's really, really a privilege and an honor to be on with you, and I fully support all the all the great work that you guys are doing. So, thanks for having me on.
0: Absolutely, and I just want to tell you before we uh, before we close out today that there were some people leaving little notes saying thank you for coming on. And that they watched your Fasting Transformation Summit and they just absolutely loved it, and they love your work.
2: Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate that. Um, you know, was, that's a passion project of mine. Fasting transformed my, my life. I've seen it transform so many others. And really all the information that we're able to provide here, um, you know, this is, this, is, this is the gifting that uh, God's given us, right? All three of us, right? And so, um, you know, when people tune in, it just gives us a, a platform to be able to, uh, to do something that rewards us so much as well by giving all these great strategies and biohacks that people can, can take to improve their life and their health.
1: Absolutely. So we want to let everyone listening know we're not going to have a podcast next week. All of us on the MHH team will be off doing some team building together, but you'll want to join us the week after that. We have a really special guest who's going to be on to talk about red light therapy and some of the benefits that people are seeing the health benefits from adding red light therapy, you know, to your regular wellness routine. So you'll want to tune in, check your email. You'll get an email on that with a date and a time to tune in.
2: Yeah. I love red light therapy. Yeah, Use it this too. morning.
1: <laughs> awesome. Thank
0: you, everyone. Have a wonderful weekend and don't forget to get some self-care in and get some sunshine and take your shoes off and walk in the grass this weekend. See you soon, everyone.